Welcome to Knowing Neurons, where neuroscientists take you on a guided tour into the brain. Whether you're a science enthusiast or a scientist yourself, if you're interested in the brain, we've got something for you. I'm Elizabeth Burnett. And I'm Ayushi Sharma. Joining us today is Dr. Ben Ryan, a postdoctoral researcher in Dr. Robert Malenka's lab at Stanford University, and outside the lab, a science communicator with an audience of over 900,000. Ben will be kicking off our next mini-series on science communication and outreach. Hi, Ben. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm really excited to get started. So just to kick off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do day to day? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford. So my day-to-day looks like the day-to-day of any, you know, PhD student, postdoctoral researcher, um, anyone who's doing experiments on a daily basis. And I'm happy to go into greater detail about all of that. But um, but the unique part of my day-to-day is that I blend those responsibilities with the variety of extracurricular science communication stuff that I do. So um, the nice thing about being a postdoctoral researcher, especially in Rob Malenka's lab at Stanford, is that it's very independent and very self-guided. So I make all my own hours, I choose my experiments, and I'm just in full control of my schedule. And so as you can see, today I'm at home, I'm working on things remotely. And um, yeah, it's it's really nice and, and very conducive for the type of stuff that I do, which involves a lot of uh, social media, things like that, where I certainly can't film TikTok videos at the lab. (laughs) (laughs) People like me and Libby and many people at Knowing Neurons obviously know who you are. We follow your work. And if someone mentions your name, it's like, oh, I follow him. But for people who are listening to this podcast, could you just talk a little bit more about why you have not over 900,000 followers, what you post about and what your voice is on these outlets? Well, thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate that. Um, I post generally science education content on TikTok and social, or on TikTok and Instagram, and getting started on YouTube as well. But they're short videos, they're short form clips where they're generally around sixty seconds or so. And the my goal every single video is to leave the viewer with some sort of unique, valuable, interesting insight about science that they would not have found um, otherwise. And and especially that they would not have been able to gather in 60 seconds. So sometimes it's a summary of an entire research paper where I, I give, obviously I can't summarize everything, but it's the main points. It's a takeaway. It's how might this affect day-to-day life for you? Um, sometimes it's debunking misinformation where there's a viral video that's saying something that's just not true. And so I will very quickly correct the claim. Um, and sometimes it's just general science lessons, cool things that you might find in a textbook that are you know, generally believed to be true, but you have to take a neuroscience class at the college level to really um, come upon it. So I just kind of try to share as much of this interesting science stuff as I can. Uh, and, and luckily for me and luckily for... Uh, for the field of science, people are interested. So I'm I'm very grateful that I've had luck in in amassing a following and, um, you know, just connecting with the public in this way. So can you talk a little bit about you know your journey into science communication and how you first got involved with outreach? Yes, I would love to. And it's such a funny story because it happened on accident. And 
uh, I had never in I never even thought about doing science communication. In fact, if you had asked me what science communication was in the second third year of my PhD, I would have I probably wouldn't even have given a valid answer to that. It wasn't something to me. My my life and my career were very separate. And on the career side, I would go to the lab, I would do experiments, and I would have science. And on the life side, I wouldn't really talk about science that much. I would just have my my personal stuff. It was, you know, I had my own Instagram and stuff. I had a personal social media. And I never really thought about how they would cross over and blend with one another. Until early in the pandemic, when I posted a video on TikTok. So I I wasn't already using TikTok. I, I had just downloaded the app and kind of had seen what was on there. And I went to Walmart. <laughs> this was like my first time leaving the house in the beginning of the pandemic. I'd been locked down for four or five weeks or something like that. And I just like needed groceries. So I went to Walmart and um, and I noticed that nobody knew how to wear a, a surgical mask. I'm looking for one around me. I don't have one. But, um, you know, there were people didn't people weren't aware that you could like clasp the nose bar and that you could expand them and that there was an inside and an outside and what portion of your face was supposed to be within the mask. So I just saw every variety of face mask wearing. I think we all probably experienced a bit of this. And I got home and I thought, wow, you know, people don't know how to do this. I, I know how to wear these masks. I've been wearing them in the lab for the last few years. I should probably make a video for my Facebook or my, my friends and family to explain how to wear a mask. And I chose to film myself on TikTok. I wasn't intending to post it on TikTok, but I chose to film myself only because it was the only app that I could think of where I could film 60 plus seconds consistently without a break. Like Snapchat, there's a 15 second cutoff. Instagram, I think there's a 10 second cutoff or maybe that that's inverted. Um, but you know, for all those apps, there's like a chop and like it kind of disrupts the video and I knew TikTok. And I don't know why I didn't just use the iPhone like <laughs> camera app, but for some reason I thought it had to be done on a social media app. Anyways, I, I went to save the video and the only way to save it was to post it. So I uploaded it. And that video ended up getting almost 2 million views on TikTok. And that's where it all started for me. Wow. It, yeah. And, and it was just like the perfect storm because I got extremely lucky. I don't really know why that video did so well. I think part of it was that I probably looked so out of place because all the other content on TikTok is so, you know, like rehearsed and people are do you know, they're trying to educate the public and if they're doing educational stuff. And for me, it was just, I was just making a video for my friends and family. So it was like very personal and casual. And I think the tone just like really struck people as unusual. Um, <laughs> that's my current theory of why it went viral. I actually it's- saw the video. Um, I don't even have TikTok. One of my family members showed it to me. They're like, hey, I, you should show this to your patients. Cause I kept talking about how the pa- we had to always correct the patients. And I, that's how I saw your video, actually. Really? <laughs> yeah. That see, Truly and viral. that's so cool because, <laughs> yeah, and that's that's what I that's what it, what I was saying is the perfect storm. It wasn't just the perfect recipe of virality, but for me personally, it was the perfect storm of experiencing the true impact of social media, where it wasn't just a video of me dancing or something where I'm like, wow, look, I'm famous now. It was, it was holy cow, two million people may now understand how to wear a mask at a time where they have to do so. And during a pandemic, you know, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of confusion. And I just helped 2 million people understand this thing. And, and that's really like, that's the reason why I originally got into science, academic science, because I want to be a professor. 
I, I'm just inclined to sharing information that is useful to others, which is the reason why I, I made the video in the first place to share with my friends and family. I never even thought about it reaching the public. And it was just like, I, I really went back and forth for a few days about whether I actually even wanted to post anything and whether, or whether I just wanted to be, you know, a one hit wonder. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I had these conversations with my friends and family and people were like, are you kidding me? Why would you not do this? This is so useful. And people were saying, you know, there's, you can make money and you could do this and that. And then I, it was really the impact that settled in on me where I was like, I can teach people about the brain and that's cool. And that's sort of just, the, that was the start. And I, and I began posting more and more videos and answering questions. And it's now been about, I don't know, two and a half years or so. And uh, it's become a really core piece of my life. That's amazing. And I'm interested to know, like, what kind of response you got, especially starting from somewhere that's become as sort of controversial, and I guess, even started as controversial as mask wearing. Right, I, yeah, I mean, it, it that my experience would be a lot different now, I think. Um, this was so early in the pandemic that it wasn't controversial yet about masks and whether they work and whether people should wear them. And, you know, it was, this was early on. I think if I posted the same video now, people would harass and attack me, yeah. unfortunately. Um, the response was overwhelmingly amazing, just beautiful. It, people were saying like, oh, it's such a sweetheart. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It was funny. It was very unusual and unexpected. Um, and I mean, what I did find, it, unfortunately, was that the more and more exposure I got, the more videos I posted, the more different topics I kind of wandered into, the more negative feedback I received. I think it's just a a matter of like, there are people out there who are mean on the internet. There are dark corners of the web where harassment and violence occurs. And the more exposure you get, you will eventually find yourself there. And I've heard this from other creators as well, that the, in the beginning, they started out with, you know, positivity and love from their audience and then you reach a point where it shifts and um and that also is true for individual videos where you post a video the first 50 comments are i love this thanks for sharing and then the next 50 comments are i disagree and i hate you and you know I, it, there's there's a great spectrum of um of kindness on the internet yes yeah that's certainly true yeah but unfortunately, you can't stay at the high end all the time. Also, in terms of response that you've gotten, like, how's the response been from not necessarily like the lay audience, but from academic people? Like, is your postdoc mentor cool with it? Have you felt like the scientific community's support for what you're doing? Yeah, in the beginning, I was horrified of anybody in science learning about this, <laughs> um, particularly my lab mates and my supervisor and people in my department and stuff like that. I was very afraid of people finding out that I was using TikTok for public education. Um, but it turned out over time, you know, the, the information sort of came out, you know, pe people would come up to me and be like, I'm pretty sure I saw you on TikTok. Are you posting on TikTok? And, you know, it just sort of spreads. And, uh, and I fought it for a while because I was so scared. And it turns out that everyone was incredibly supportive. I'm, I've never actually had anyone in the academic realm 
say anything negative to my face, at least about what I'm doing. I've only had positivity and people saying, you know, this is so important and I think you do a great job. And I was really very, very surprised by that. And it took me a long time to realize. Um, and luckily there are, there's even institutional support where now there are grants for scientists who can communicate to the public and there are awards for public engagement and things like that, where it's becoming more and more a, a true piece of science and not just mm -hmm. a, an extracurricular activity. Uh, and I, I'm really happy to see that genuinely. So yeah, I was very happy to see that the response was, was positive. That's fantastic. Um, can you remind us of who your primary audience is and why you feel that it's important to reach them? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, TikTok and Instagram both give demographic information about who is watching, but it's really hard to know exactly who my audience really is. I know that, for example, a certain percentage are, you know, living in the United States or for a certain percentage are between the age of 25 to 34. But I kind of just try to imagine my audience and the average viewer as just like one of my friends, you know, a, a person who is maybe curious, maybe not curious about science, probably doesn't know very much about science or about the specific topic I'm speaking about, which is completely fine. It's, I don't know anything about anything but science, you know, um, like if someone's talking about me about agriculture or something like I have no idea, please tell me everything. So I just kind of assume the, the lowest level of knowledge on the topic um, which gives me the most flexibility in how I structure the lesson, you know, and I'm air quoting the lesson, but that's kind of how I view it as each, each video is a lesson and, you know, I need to build the foundation and it's tough though. Cause I'm always facing these challenges of like, okay, this video is already, I'm scripting it out and it looks like it's going to be probably a little over a minute. And I'm talking about synapses and the interactions between cells at synapses. Do I need to go into detail and spend 10, 15 seconds explaining synapses? Or is that something that might lose viewers because they already know what synapses are and they don't want to spend 15 seconds listening to me explain it? So it's a constant battle of that. And uh, I luckily for, for me and my well-being, I really enjoy that puzzle. I like trying to sort out like how much detail to include. I find it very fun. And um, and it, I, like I said, I really, I really view it as a puzzle. So, um, but yeah, I just sort of... Uh, I'm, I'm under the impression that my audience is largely the lay public. Certainly there are people in there who are PhD students, students in, you know, undergraduate students in the sciences. Um, but in general, my videos are usually pretty specific towards a certain topic. It's rare that I give a general overview of like, what is the frontal lobe or something right. like that. Usually it's a specific paper or a very specific topic where even before preparing the video, I didn't really know much about it. So I just sort of, lay up the foundation as I go. And um, yeah, I guess it's something that kind of happens sort of subconsciously as I'm preparing the video is like assessing that level of uh, education people have coming in. Yeah, for sure. And you just mentioned uh, you're kind of known for short videos, which are usually about a minute or less. Uh, why do you make them so short? And then I guess following on from that, what have you learned? What thoughts do you have about communicating relatively complex ideas very efficiently and concisely like that? Yeah, great question. I actually, if I could choose, I would not have short form videos. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's funny because I, the only reason I do those videos is because I happened to 
go viral on TikTok. And so the pressures of TikTok mandated short-term or short-form videos. If I had it my way, I would be able to hold someone's, the viewer's attention for more like 10, 15 minutes and give like a really in, more in-depth, nuanced lecture about whatever the topic is. You know, I'm, I'm forced to, to take a lot of the content out or a lot of the information out when I do it in short form. And so um, it, it's not exactly the, the ideal format. I think when you're, when you're confined to 60 seconds, there's so much room for mistakes and maybe not even mistakes, but um, misrepresentations. You know, it's, it's harder to find perfect analogies. When you're finding analogies for everything, you can't really explain everything in depth, but you're, you know, trying to, it's like this, you know, when you're doing that for everything, because you're trying to squeeze it all into 60 seconds, there's much more room for misconceptions to be had on, on the viewer side. So I think it's, um, that's partially why misinformation is so prevalent on these apps is because it's just challenging to present things accurately and concisely. Um, and it's a constant dis decision that I have to make is how much information do I leave out and how little, how superficially do I approach each individual topic within a video? Um, I think you have to have a, a bit of a trade-off. You have to kind of barter with yourself and like, you know, I, instead of presenting every figure of this paper, I'm going to find a message that can be conveyed through one figure of the paper. And therefore, you know, I, instead of touching very lightly on every bit, I can go into depth about this one specific finding. And that's a lot of the time where I end up falling. Um, but it's tough. I mean, you, you, accuracy is the most important thing in my, in my opinion, it's, it's yeah, it's the most important thing. It's you I'd much rather have a fully accurate video than a fully viral video, especially if that viral video is not accurate. And I think that uh as a scientist, you know, I have that perspective, but I think most creators do not and it's very easy to discard accuracy. I mean, even the, in the beginning, I I thought about accuracy, of course, and I was aware that you know i need to talk about things that are scientifically valid but early on the first couple of videos that i made i really i didn't even like cite any sources or check the information i was just sort of speaking from what i how i understood things and what i had you know the impression i had of certain topics based on the classes i had taken in the this and that and then at one point it hit me where i was like i might be spreading misinformation like i was so this is pretty embarrassing but I was talking to someone and I was like, wait, why is it that there's, it's warmer in the summer and colder in the winter? Is it because like the sun is closer to the earth in the summer? And that's like a very common misconception that people have that I genuinely don't like, didn't know. And that I didn't make it in a video. It was just in a conversation. But like in that moment, it hit me where I was like, wait, this is something that I've always kind of just like thought and I could easily just make a video about this and, and misrepresent this topic or say something that's completely false just because I believe it's true. That just because I believe it's true doesn't mean it's true. And so I like suddenly shifted and, and I put a lot more um, focus into making sure that everything I'm talking about in a video has like a very clear scientific source. Um, and, and that I think was absolutely critical. I'm really glad that I did that because I probably could have ended up into some uh, maybe dangerous waters or spreading misinformation if I hadn't done that.
Yeah, absolutely. Kind of continuing on from that, um, what do you think is currently lacking in the field of science communication? Do you think it's that, you know, being very clear about citing your sources? Um, it depends what you define as science communication. I think if the definition of science communication includes anybody talking about science in a public forum, then definitely. Um, I think in general, scientific content on the internet needs to be more reliable. And in fact, if it doesn't have a clear scientific source or there's no scientific validity to the claims, I wouldn't even call it scientific communication. It's really just someone speaking about science. Um, so in my mind, I tend to define science communication as um, scientists doing communication, you know, because it's very, very different. And and I could be convinced otherwise, certainly. But um, but I have I have specific, unique thoughts about that realm of scientists going on social media and speaking. Um, so I'll talk about that. I think that one of the major sort of difficulties, I wouldn't say it's a flaw, but one of the major difficulties right now in that space of scientists speaking online is a disagreement about like what's okay to say. You know, I think everyone has like when you when you publish a scientific paper and you make an argument in the paper, you're citing some source and then you publish you submit it to a paper or to a journal, sorry. And the reviewers can, if they want to, they can debate your claim and they can debate your source and they can say, well, that's not really fair to say that, uh, you know, or this, this is one study with a small underpowered study and you can't really make any strong claims from it. Um, that same stuff kind of happens on, on social media where scientists or, you know, people talking about science will make claims based on the literature that sometimes are you know, highly rigorous claims or, you know, are, are backed by a highly rigorous data set where they're making a claim based on a meta-analysis of a bunch of studies. And it's pretty clear that it, it, there was a consistent result. Um, or there will be a another person talking about a single study with like five people in it. And I don't know, I think that it's, I guess what I'm kind of narrowing or moving towards is this idea that if science communication in a public realm is going to be a piece of science scientists need to have like some level of discussion about like what's appropriate where do we where do we feel is appropriate to inform the public about science because what we kind of saw happening in real time with covid is like there's some evidence for something it goes out to the public and then later on the evidence changes and i think the general public or some segments of the general public may not fully understand the idea that like data change and that if you have a the strength of a conclusion can change depending on how strong the data are and um so when we're moving quickly and spreading information about what we think we understand there needs to be some level of like by the way this is just a hypothesis you know or like hey there's a, here's a study with five people in it it's interesting um but we don't actually know if this is true or not it's just like one study uh so I think that whole question mark forces a lot of scientists to kind of just step away because scientists don't want to be misinforming people. Um, but what you do get is the people who decide not to step away and who do step in is there's a lot of 
uncertainty and, and lack of clarity and dialogue between the scientists. And then you end up with scientists fighting each other publicly on social media, which looks terrible. You know, I don't think that yeah, not a that good should be happening either. No, no. I mean, and it's like, if people understand that, like, that's kind of what scientists do is they disagree and they review each other's claims and, you know, this is how science works, then it's okay. But when the public has an impression of science that it's uncertain and constantly changing and scientists can't make up their minds and then everyone's fighting about it, you lose the that sort of objective sense of like, what is accurate and what is true. And so I think we, we run the risk of further confusing the public about what exactly science is. If scientists just start going out and doing like rogue forms of science communication at all different levels of, of rigor and different approaches. Uh, and that's, that doesn't help the problem of public distrust so I don't know if there's a solution. I've kind of just went on a, a rant here that I've never actually spoken about out loud. This all just kind of came out. <laughs> I I appreciate it because it points out, I think, something that's been on a lot of people's minds lately. And it's the subject of so many different posts, articles. I even saw an article in maybe Nature Communications about it that alluded to this. And it, But it's weird because... we're not we talk about it sometimes not always and it's hard to know what to do going forward I think a lot of I think even outside of science people aren't necessarily taught to retain the curiosity and inquisitiveness that drives us as children so you stop questioning things and just take things as they are and I I don't know I don't know what it is but I, I love that you brought it up because I think as someone who is an avid science communicator, you also see you're you're in an entire arena with a bunch of people who are communicating things that aren't even reality anymore. And it's really difficult to balance that. What do yeah. you think we should be doing as scientists to promote better dissemination of information, even from scientists themselves? Well, um, I happen to believe that the infrastructure of science needs to change a bit. Uh, I think that I've been becoming increasingly public and sort of loud about this belief. And I think it's okay for me to say, because I think most scientists agree that this, the whole like scientific publishing system is kind of a mess. And when it comes to public messaging, it just makes absolutely no sense. I had this realization within the last few weeks, even, where I was like, what's the purpose of me spending, as a postdoc, spending years on a study, years, and all, just like giving my all to this study for the hope that it will eventually be published in a scientific journal where without people like myself or other science communicators or journalists, this will never be ever seen by the public. Like, why would I work so hard to create something that then goes into a place that the public really can't access unless they pay for it? And then if they pay for it, they still can't even understand what the way it's written. And it, it just, it kind of, it kind of hurt me a little bit where I was like, wow, you know, science feels so impactful, but without the messaging to the public, there is no impact, you know, and you're just hoping that you can, and, and that's not always true, of course, that, the, that there is no impact. But for, I'm thinking from my particular research where, uh, like, I'm not doing clinical research. I'm not 
help helping patients or studying anything like that. It's like, I'm just trying to understand how something works. So if I, if I figure out a basic fundamental principle of how the brain works and it goes into a scientific journal, it's not impacting anyone. It's not educating anyone unless someone out there, professor decides to implement it into their course and, you know, it goes into a textbook and it's just like, we need to have public communication to serve as what I like to call, I like to describe them as the gap junctions that connect science and the public, you know? And so for anyone who doesn't know this in cells, there are these little things called gap junctions where, which connect cells and things can flow in between them and stuff. And I, I view like science and society are two separate cells and the information needs to pass between them in some way. And so we need to install gap junctions. We need to install science communicators. Potentially we need to change policies. Like whenever you publish a scientific paper, you are required to also include a lay summary so that if anyone wants to, they can go to the website and instead of paying to get through the paywall and then not being able to understand it before they hit the paywall, they get the lay summary and they can just read it and understand, okay, this is what the study is about. And it's written by the scientists themselves. It doesn't require any interpretation from a third party. There's no game of telephone where it's being misinterpreted on over a series of chains. Uh, it's just, let's just include this as a part of everything we're doing. I mean, think about all the stuff that scientists have to do. We, when we apply for grants, we have to apply, you know, we have to include training portions and what are the institutional um, centers that are available. There's so many like pieces of paperwork that we go through. And when you're applying for you're submitting it to a journal, you have to have a cover letter and you have to do all, you have to format it to the journal. You have to do all this stuff that doesn't actually matter in terms of public messaging. Why not just have a one page lay summary where it takes the impact of your work to an entirely new level and it costs you less time than you spend formatting your references anyways. You know, it just, I, it fires me up a bit. I, I just, I really think that science needs to think as a field more about how to get the information to the public. You're so right. And I, I think that's like what an abstract should be, right, in an ideal world and maybe is what abstracts used to be, but mm -hmm. now they're just completely filled with jargon. Yeah, that's true. I I totally agree. And the one thing about it that was notable is that I could see how in the beginning it was to better enhance the replication of research, but now because of how intense some of these word limits are, you really lose so much of the methods anyway. You have to always include like your GitHub or, or whatever supplementary stuff online. And it's very difficult for a lot of these studies to actually read the article and actually be able to replicate it. So now that that, that points out, it's like, well, what is this for exactly? I don't know. But it's this academic currency that's so important. I wish we had journals that were for people that like your average lay citizen rather than for other scientists. Well, frontiers for yeah. young minds, as we've discussed on the show previously. <laughs> right. It's the only yeah, one I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. And knowing neurons, I guess, fills that void. I do have a question for you. So um, there are a lot of people like Cal Newport, uh, James Clear, in their books have written about this idea of what social media does and like digital minimalism and stuff like that. And for someone like you and people like us on this episode, we, we all use social media in really positive ways, I think. But there's also this question that comes up, which is, especially as an early career researcher, how, how important is it for young scientists to actually learn how to convey 
scientific findings or even have a voice about science on social media. Is it, do you think that it's a role that should be for very specific people who have like a passion for this? Or do you think that everyone as a scientist should at least have some input on this and should use their social media as an outlet? And how do you, I, I don't know, for a lot of people, it can be very daunting and overwhelming, especially since there are guides on how to convey science in a research paper or on a grant, but there are very few resources out there for people who want to to write about science and share science online. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I well, I think that um, it would be bad if every scientist did what I do on TikTok and Instagram. I think that would be very bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because, you know, not everyone is made for that type of thing, you know, and especially so just to start there, I think that there need to be certain people who do this, who educate the public. Um, I mean, and, and to clarify what I mean by that, I mean, just imagine if like every single person in the world had a blog where they would post daily about their day, like that would be such a horrible thing. It would just become a mess and nobody would pay attention to anyone's. And like so Facebook. I think, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's essentially what I've just created in my mind is Facebook. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think it would be good to have all the scientists out there with all the different per perspectives and the different, um, or sorry, not perspectives, the different perspectives are valuable, but the different like styles and just everybody trying to be like a TikTok creator. I think that's such a bad idea. But what I do think is is useful is for everyone to just sort of speak about science whenever they are able to, you know, whenever they're invited to. And that does require what you were saying is the ability to communicate with the public about science. And again, these are just my opinions on this, but I for anyone who's gone through a PhD, they know that the experience of of getting a PhD or master's degree is you start out as essentially a layperson and as you go through your training, you become increasingly specialized in the topic that you are focused on and um, you kind of warm up to and begin to understand the specific jargon, the scientific jargon that's used in that field. And you're, you're like, it's kind of like learning a new language. Like you're learning the language of your field and you're learning how to read, write like a scientist and read like a scientist and talk like a scientist to other scientists. And you're becoming increasingly distanced from that person that you used to be, that lay person who didn't understand any of this stuff. And I really think it's important that along that same path of training, there's also some training about how to like back translate that, you know, it's, it shouldn't be a one directional path from lay to expert. It should be, there should be two lanes where you're learning how to understand the expert stuff, but you're also kind of like bringing that lay person along with you and recognizing like, how does this fit into the public's understanding? Cause that's the time, that's the time to understand and develop skills for explaining this stuff to the public is when you're learning how to understand it yourself. It's like, how do I understand this? How am I, how am I, uh, conceptualizing this for myself. And if you can capture that and just sort of leave a little memory in your mind of like, how did I understand this when I learned it? That's super valuable. And that's all it takes to get someone else to understand it. And, and I hate the idea of um, saying that like all scientists have a responsibility to communicate to the public because 
scientists already have to do so much. I mean, you have to be good at so many things like the technical skills and experimental design and data analysis and statistics and teaching and mentoring and everything and, and writing and convin being convincing. Um, and I think the public may not really know that is that you have to have, you have to wear so many hats in science that it's like, okay, great. Now we have to wear another hat. We have to be able to explain this all to the public. But I mean, the fact is that these skills translate directly into very useful benefits. If you're, if you're a scientist in an academic setting, you're also teaching classes. And so if you're teaching classes, then having useful kind of like heuristics in your mind of like, how do I get someone to understand this one topic? Just having that available makes you a more effective professor and being able to communicate your work to the public and get someone to understand it can be extremely valuable. What if that person is an investor looking for labs to support? You know, what if they're a foundation and they sit at a table full of scientists and you're the only one that really connects with them because you're the one that most effectively explained your science. There are direct benefits on, on science as a sort of business, you know, uh, by being able to explain your science effectively. So I think investing in those skills is not only valuable and useful, but I, I actually believe that it should be a part of the standards PhD or master's like graduate level training for scientists. I 100% agree. Yeah, completely. And I apologize if I have very strong opinions <laughs> on all of these things. These are things I think about constantly. No, no, I, I've, it's really actually lovely to hear everything that you're saying. And it's nice to have strong opinions because so much, so much is tempered in PhD education. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to have the raw, the raw opinions of a scientist. It is. Well, and I appreciate that. Why do you think that there are so many scientists that don't engage in science, in scientific communication, just, you know, based on everything that you said, it is better for the field. Like, why do you think that it is not more popular than it is? Because there's no incentive. There's no direct. So science is a, an incentive guided system, you know, um, like you're saying, you know, public papers are the currency. Mm -hmm. And in reality, the currency of science is money because without money, you can't do experiments, but you can't have money if you don't do experiments and publish papers. So all the incentive structure in science is built around publishing papers and getting more grants and recruiting more people and having more money and you know that all these things feed each other and scientists are so overburdened with doing all these things and teaching and having families let's not forget that these are human beings with lives uh there's just no time there's no time for for any of this stuff and this i mean especially for like established investigators you know professors um, luckily I got involved in science communication at the PhD stage where I had the time and flexibility to, to work on this stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, and that's also a reason why I think there, we need to find ways to incentivize scientists for public message messaging. And right now, the only incentives that seem to exist are awards. Like I said, like the American association for the advancement of science has an award for, um, it's the early career award for public engagement with science. Things like that, where institutions, these large foundations and respected groups are beginning to recognize scientists for their work, but that's not a guarantee at all. You know, it's, you could spend decades doing public messaging and sitting in classrooms with young kids and helping people understand science and not make a dollar. And all it does is distract you from your, the incentive structure, you know, publishing and getting grants and that. So 
there needs to be some consideration of public engagement and whether that's internally within institutions when people are up for tenure they're looking at they're factoring in you know how, how many extracurricular activities are people engaged in whether it's when departments are hiring professors they're looking at well is this person going to add anything to our public image as a university you know do they have a social media following do they have a podcast do they have connections on at places that typically academic institutions don't uh, I think all those things are going to have to start being considered for more scientists to get involved. And, you know, I don't blame scientists for not getting involved. It's it's so much work just being a scientist alone. And the science communication stuff is also pretty involved. Um, and the final reason, I think, is because, unfortunately, as I mentioned at the very beginning, scientists experience a lot of harassment and hate on social media. Um, everyone kind of does in general, I think. But scientists in particular are a unique demographic that there are people out there who just don't want to see science, don't want to hear about it. And they will use violent, you know, serious tactics to try to get scientists off of social media. They will, they will harass, they will threaten, they will actually, in some cases, like really impact people's lives. I mean, I've, I've had it happen to me. I've, I've seen it happen to others, um, which is, a terrible shame, but to me, that just suggests that it's even more important than ever before. You know, if you can't even show your face in public as a scientist without getting harassed, then what does that say about how the public understands and, and views science? And so we need more relatable, just everyday people who are scientists on these apps just sort of existing. And that's why I say, I don't think that everyone needs to go on and, and start making TikTok videos. But if you go on and you post on social media and you're like, Hey, I'm, I mean, and it should be completely organic. It should be only something that you want to do, but you're at the lab and you post a selfie in your lab code. And you're like, I'm proud of myself that I'm at the lab and I, and I'm in my PhD program or whatever. And someone sees it and they might think typically, Oh, I really don't like science. They might be one of those people that harass the scientists and they might see you and they might think, Oh, I actually, I really like this person. And I never really thought about them as a scientist before, but they are. And so maybe scientists aren't all evil and, you know, terrible. I think just getting people to understand that scientists are not this like mysterious uh, Illuminati group, you know, that's like trying to poison the entire world that and we're just everyday people that you see on the street that happen to just work in a research lab. I think that goes a long way. And so just being like a relatable, normal person and also representing the field of science is important. So that's why I think people need to just talk about it in some capacity. Uh, if they are involved. it's It's been really nice to, to to talk to you about all of this, especially because it's really nice to have that overlap between both neuroscience and social media and social, um, I don't know, social outlets that we can use to convey neuroscience. I actually had a couple of questions for you that are related to knowing neurons. Yeah, so there so I was actually curious. so, I'm not necessarily a social media influencer in any capacity, but I think just because I was involved in the social media team on Knowing Neurons, I eventually now am heading up the social media team. And it's a lot because, well, I love doing the podcasts and the social media was usually second to that. And now we're trying to plan what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, and it's it's interesting because there's there's a group of people that want to do reels and like TikTok videos and 
I was just curious what you thought were gaps in that need to be filled in these outlets because you obviously you know do so much and then there are other people doing a lot too and I was just curious if you thought that there was a pressing need for something um it's a great question I mean I think there are many pressing needs but probably they're already being addressed somewhere I think the real the way I view it is that there are many things that need to go viral but probably can't go viral by design like for example how great would it be if there were a video series for the general public about how to locate access and interpret scientific papers and the difference between scientific papers and like a you know new york times article something like that um that's something that i might do long term it's something that i've definitely been thinking about but the problem is that that's never going to go viral you know no one's ever going to sit there and and be blown away by let's say me explaining how to read a paper you know and and i guarantee you know if i have 100,000 followers on and my videos get 75,000 views if i post this one it'll probably get 10,000 views you know and it's still something but um so I, I guess what I'm saying is there are gaps, but they exist not because ha someone hasn't thought of them yet, but because the platforms are built to kind of suppress this type of less interesting, but super needed content. Um, so there are definitely things that can be done. Um, one thing I don't see enough of that I think could be really great is conversations with scientists about their work specifically. Um, it's something that I wanted to get into because a lot of the times in my videos, I'll, I'll present a paper and I thought about how cool it would be if I just could find the information of the scientists and give them a call and be like, Hey, I mean, I'm making a TikTok video, Instagram video about your paper. It's going to be seen by a lot of members of the public. What do you want the public to take away from your paper, your study? You know, what, is there a huge misconception about your study that you keep seeing in the news or about this topic that you really hope people to understand? Um, those types of things are, just so important and i and i really would like to do more of that the problem is with any of this stuff i just don't have time <laughs> i'm a postdoc and i'm you know doing a, a variety of different things that that sort of soak up all my time and so i have so many ideas and so many cool things that i want to do but just not the bandwidth for it um so i will say this if anyone out there is really inspired by this and wants to do these things please reach out to me because uh Maybe we can work together on, on getting some of these things done. Or maybe I'll just leave science and focus on social media. Who knows? <laughs> That's funny. Um, I was curious how you divide up your day, like how you divide up your day and your and your schedule, especially like if you're looking at a week, how much time do you spend on these things? And I mean, I guess TikTok videos, you can't really edit them. So, or can you edit them? I don't know. Um, but you're, it's, it's probably much easier when you're just doing a quick recording and posting rather than when you're like having oh, yeah. something. No, I, all of my videos are very carefully worked on, I suppose. I like in the beginning, I would do that where I would, someone would comment something with a question and I would just pick up the, you know, reply to comment. And then I would just film myself and post it nowadays. Um, it's I'm very organized and, and careful about it where 
I have a document of ideas where it's like the video idea and the link to the paper and the script and everything. And so that's where it all starts, where I'll, I'll have an idea. You know, I read the paper, I take notes, and this is if I'm doing a paper presentation. Um, I take notes and I, and then I start to write a script and, you know, I get to a point where I have a script and then usually I'll sit on it for a couple of days or I'll, I'll try my best to completely forget about it. Come back a few days later, look at my paper notes, look at the script, make sure everything makes sense and that I didn't make a mistake and then re, re, reread through the script and uh, make sure that it sounds okay. And then I film it and then I edit it and then I post it. And then it's a 60 second clip that took me six hours to make and it gets 5,000 views and I'm like, okay, I just wasted six hours of my life. Um, but that only happens sometimes. But anyways, that's not even really what you asked. Um, my day is, like I said in the beginning, I, I have full control over my hours and my schedule and everything. So I'm constantly doing a different set of experiments every week in the lab. So that's always changing. So I guess the way I really approach it is that I'll schedule out my experiments for the lab, like a month in advance, where I'll have every day, I know exactly what room I have booked and what experiments are doing. And then I kind of just like fill the gaps from there. So I have a very unusual, like unconventional type of schedule where it's not like I, I'm expected to be somewhere nine to five. It's just that as long as I'm progressing on my experiments um, and getting the work done, then we're all good. So, uh, it, and, but usually what ends up happening is I kind of divide my days, uh, by day. So Monday, let's say I'm in the lab all day doing experiments, not, not doing anything with social media. And then Tuesday I'm at home making videos. Um, and not, not to say that I, it's an even split, you know, I'm a postdoc full-time. I have to be in the lab a lot. Um, but I do end up working a lot more than I probably should. And if you consider social media work where I'm, you know, weekends and evenings and stuff like that, but the nice thing is it's really, I mean, it started off as a hobby. And so it's, it's fun. I like it. And it doesn't really feel like work a lot of the time, but sometimes it is. What, what I would really like to do is like, I wish that I had a more clear and um, like regimented schedule where I was like, you know, seven to eight, I go to the gym and then eight to nine, I read a book and then nine to three, I'm at the lab and then three to five, I film TikToks. Like I would love that. But the problem is that every single day is different. And, um, you know, I'm doing a different experiment. I have a different set of meetings, you know, maybe I'm doing a podcast like this, or maybe I'm filming TikToks, or maybe I'm doing something else, you know, whatever, maybe, um, which I like the variety, but it, the problem is, and I'm just kind of saying this so that it's just something for people to think about. The problem is that every single day I'm making a conscious decision with every moment about what I want to work on. I'm like, sitting here and I'm like, oh, I probably I could go into lab and do that experiment. Or I could, you know, work on this thing or film that video. And and that is super draining. So having the schedule um, preset would be really nice. Uh, but unfortunately, I guess that's just something it's it's this is me complaining about having so much control over my life that it's <laughs> that it's draining, uh, which is a very great position to be in. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think structure structure can be very valuable. So I'm really interested to know, um, as a scientist and a science communicator, what do you think is the greatest disconnect or misconception between the idea of neuroscience that exists in people's minds and actual neuroscience? <laughs> there are so many. It's hard to list. It's hard to choose. Um, and sometimes 
I'm reminded of them. So I'll, I'll give you one that came up recently that is the reason why it's my response. I was in Amsterdam very recently um, for a presentation and I was in this like pub and I was having dinner and there were these two guys next to me at the bar and I was talking to them and uh, they were like, oh, you're studying the brain. Cool. And it was like just such a such a hilarious ex- exchange. It was just like these older guys, one was Scottish, one was British, and they were just drinking and they were like absolutely certain that we use 10% of our brain. They were like, you know, how, how do we how do we change that? Like, how do we get to the rest of it? I'm like, you're going to be so happy to hear this. Like, I don't know how old you are. You guys are like 65 years old. You've gone your entire life thinking one, that you're yeah. only using. Yeah, it's like, how can you live your whole life thinking that? And how amazing. And I told, I had to like, keep going. I was like, no, no, it's, I promise you. And they were like, no, no, there's no way. There's no way. It's absolutely true. And it was just so funny because when I'm on social media, I'll post a video and I was talking earlier about like that decision of, do I explain what a synapse is? Sometimes I'll make a video where I simplify it to that level and people are commenting and they're like, why are you spending so much time explaining synapses? Like we understand, you know, people will express dissatisfaction with me being, you know, me assuming that they don't understand things. And then I have this type of experience where someone has this like very, very strong misunderstanding about the brain. And you can never be too certain, I think, of of where people stand. And it's funny because you think about how, for many people, those misconceptions might be the only couple of things that they know about the brain. So if someone goes their entire life, like these guys in the bar, thinking that we use 10% of their brain, they're probably spending the whole time thinking like, well, I wonder which 10% it is, you know, is it this part or is it this part? You know, is it, where is it? Is it a, is it 10% of all of it? And so it's, it's hard to imagine almost, but you have to think about like how those misconceptions might lay the foundation for someone's understanding of the brain. And it's, it's again, that process of walking yourself backward through the PhD or masters that, you know, the, the training process of understanding how science works walking yourself back and and stepping off at any point and saying, let's imagine I understood this much. How would I get myself to understand the level I have now? You know, if if someone went their whole life believing that you only use 10%, how do you fill in that gap? Do you just tell them, no, we use 100%? That's not sufficient. I think for someone who spent their whole life under, trying to understand it and building this conception of how the brain works on just 10%, if you just tell them 100%, they're probably not going to believe you. You have to find a way to explain to them in a way that makes sense. And so like that challenge right there, that is science communication, finding the way to get someone to understand something that may seem fundamentally counterintuitive or impossible to them uh, that they certainly don't know anything about already. And I find that I find that challenge uh, quite a bit of fun. What are some of the most interesting or creative ways you've seen other people communicate science? Great, great question. Um, I think probably... There's like a natural way I think about creativity, and you're asked what's the most creative way. There are some people who do like musical stuff or dance stuff or art. I mean, this is sort of the conventional definition of creative, I suppose. Um, so maybe this is like a generic answer, but I think that that's ext- I mean, to me, that's very impressive. You know, as a person who I, the way I do it is by explaining things. For someone to do like dances or music or or creating beautiful art like that is something that is so beyond my capacity or my capability that I just find it extremely impressive and it also connects with a totally different audience um so I think the bridge between science and art is 
Very cool. And I think it's also something that like people don't really talk about a whole lot, but, but art is very embedded in science. I mean, we have to make our figures. We have to sort of use art to create the representations and every scientific journal has a cover art for every, every edition. You know, it's kind of funny. Like art is very intertwined within science, but it's never really viewed as a scientific tool. And I think it it certainly can be. And so I I applaud all the people out there who are using art for uh, public messaging. And, and yeah, if if you're interested or looking for inspiration on my Instagram, I have a a highlight that's art and it's like, it goes to like all these people, like everyone who does science art. So you can see what's out there. Maybe you'll get some ideas. So finally, just to wrap up, um, we do like to ask people, what do you think makes a great scientist and also what makes a great science communicator? And what do you think are the overlap between the two of those? Oh, this is a fabulous question. Um, When I started my current lab, I'm working with Rob Malenka at Stanford. He's one of the scientists who sort of characterized the process of synaptic plasticity and how synapses change with experience and with um, drug use and various things. When I got to his lab, my whole perspective on science completely changed because he is unquestionably the most, the best scientist that I've ever met. And I'm lucky that I work with him. I mean, he is so incredibly rigorous. I didn't even think that this level of rigor existed within science. It's like, it's to the point where someone does an experiment in the lab. Of course, at the very least level of rigor, we're making sure that we're doing all the right control experiments, that we're sufficiently powered that there's no thing, you know, that we're blinded, that there's nothing that might um, like affect the results. If we get a result, we'd replicate it again. Ideally, someone else in the lab will replicate it. And it gets to the point where it's, it's such a strong piece of evidence that like across the lab, everyone believes that like it must be true because we all found the same result by doing, I mean, it's, it's not always that way, but you know, that's where the way he would like it to be is that multiple people found the same result people did it in a blind fashion, you know, there was no bias or anything like that. And then even still, he will publish these findings, and he'll still be worried about whether it's real or not. (laughs) He is he is that rigorous where he's actually, like, I've heard him say, like, I hope some of the stuff that we published is real, even though we, we all know that every single bit of data that we've published from the lab is like, held to the highest standard I've ever seen any lab hold their data to. And in the lab meetings, if you present something, and you you know, you make a strong claim about your data that's not supported, or you, you know, you say anything that's not very clearly indicated by the data, you will be pressed about it. And you it'll be, it'll be for sure that by the end of the meeting, you will either be planning to do the experiments to make that claim, or you'll be walking back that claim a bit. And it's just so I think this level of commitment to just scientific validity, you know, designing the experiments in a way where you're not afraid to do the, you should be, this is the other thing he said, sorry. You should be afraid to do each experiment because every experiment should be an intentional effort to prove yourself wrong. And that, that level of rigor in science, I just think is so rare where people will do an experiment and they'll find a result and they'll be like, perfect. Okay. Like this is exactly what we were hoping to be true. So like, let's not touch it, you know, like, let's not go back and replicate it. Cause what if we don't see it again? I think there's like, sometimes people, sometimes labs are like that where it's, in that case that I just explained, it's very deliberate of like, oh, I don't want to mess with it. But sometimes you see labs with very like small sample sizes and, and then they go to conferences and they present it and they're like, I'm absolutely sure this is the truth. And it's just the exact opposite of, of my PI. And I really think that, um, especially when you think about 
if these findings are then translated to the public and communicated to the public, and then a year from now, they are not replicated, then that becomes a problem with scientific communication and, and science looking like it's flip-flopping. So I think all, ideally all studies that are published should be extremely rigorous. And it's kind of like, that's what the whole peer review system originally developed to do. But nowadays it's just like people asking you to do like more experiments to, <laughs> to you know, to, to satisfy whatever their particular curiosity is, not in all cases. Um, and peer review is still great, but you know, I think that the internal system of con conducting science within each lab should be like as tight as possible. And so this does c directly translate to science communicators is I think just the same sort of level of rigor of, of um, being aware that the information you're putting out may or may not make a difference and that, you know, there should be a level of certainty. And if there's not a level of certainty, there should be a caution you know, sort of a warning of like, I made a video one time about a paper that had one person in it. It was literally a, the sample size of one. And, you know, it's like, this is the, the purpose of the video is like, Hey, this is a cool thing that was seen, but like, it's a sample size of one, you know, this is not like, uh, everybody experiences this type of thing. Um, and looking back on it, I probably didn't even emphasize that enough, but it's just important to be aware of the implications of every statement you make on the internet as a scientist. Um, and I think that awareness of like the possibilities of what may happen comes with experience because I've certainly been in the wrong a lot of times where I, where I genuinely made mistakes and had to figure out how to deal with it. Um, you just never know what's going to happen or how people might interpret certain things. So um, just and, and that's unavoidable, but being conscious of it and willing to work on being a better communicator, being a more rigorous communicator is the key thing. And I think that a lot of the time we see a, a complete lack of that where people start to focus on like viewership and getting like enhancing an audience versus the quality of the content. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been great. Of course. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you having me and I hope um, that you know, my, my beliefs came across in a way that wasn't overly strong or impassioned, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, like I said, it's, these are things I think about a lot and a lot of the podcasts I go on, just, they want to ask me about the brain and how it works and stuff, which is great too, but I don't get a, a whole lot of chances to talk about this stuff. So I appreciate the questions that you've asked. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Knowing Neurons podcast, and thank you to Dr. Ben Ryan for joining us today. Visit benryan.com for links to all of Ben's SciComm social media channels, and stay tuned for the continuation of our science communication and outreach mini-series. This episode was written and produced by Ayushi Sharma, Chao Chunyin, Danny Cusco, Ibrahim Fahey, and Elizabeth Burnett. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the use of his songs Bleeping Demo, Pamgea, and Study and Relax. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support Knowing Neurons and the neuroscience education we produce, consider backing us on Patreon at patreon.com slash knowingneurons. Patrons like you help keep the lights on for our site and enable us to create more episodes like this one in the future. And for more neuroscience, you can always visit us on knowingneurons.com for articles about the brain, science illustrations, and more. Thanks for listening.